And now, enjoy this free JZO Modcast show. Carry on all that you have said. There'll be peace when you are gone. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry. Don't you cry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 110 of Lupus Bits, the episode that almost didn't happen. Why? Because I'm an idiot. I uh, couldn't figure out why the audio was sounding really, really crappy. And yes, you're going to hear fan blowing in the background. Menopause is a pain in the butt today. Actually, it's not menopause. It's just really hot in this house. Um... But I had the phone, so my live studio audience could watch, I had the phone um, over top of the microphone, so that's why it was sounding a little strange. Anyway, happy Halloween, everybody. Um, This episode is going to come out on the 28th, so happy Halloween. Uh, The Halloween edition of the World of Myth magazine. (coughs) dropped today, um, the 24th, that's when I'm recording, and yes, I will try, for the benefit of my publisher, of my producer, to not talk through my coughs, so that he can remove my coughs from the podcast, and you won't hear them, but just know that we are now into week two of this lovely hack, so... (coughs) There you go. There's a nice little, you can see it, it's there, you take it out. Anyway, um, yeah, so I couldn't figure out why the audio was being weird, but I fixed it. But yeah, the Halloween issue of the World of Myth magazine is out. It is an incredible issue. Um, I am very pleased to say it is jam-packed full of... Halloween, hang on, Halloween goodies, and all scary things, and funny things, and pumpkin-y things, and a few Edgar Allan Poe-y things. Uh, Let me see, what else do we have for housekeeping? Zombie Works Publications. Annual Anthology is set to be released on the 26th by the time you hear this podcast. It will already be out, and you better go buy one. Just saying. It's an incredible book. It is called Unwelcomed Tales of Hauntings and Possessions. And the theme this year was hauntings and possessions, obviously. You can get it at Myth Mart and anywhere books are sold. Barnes and Noble, online, Amazon, all those wonderful places. Production for Dark Myth Comics is expected to resume in November, but because of Dave's health, um, the schedule is expected to be very light, but we will be moving forward. The Jason Modcast Podcast Network has a new home. This is news to me, finding out all of this at the same time. Surprise, he says. Okay. 
the Jazo Modcast Podcast Network has a new home at jazomodcast.com. That's J A Y Z O M O D A C A S T dot com. <coughs> and it was decided, sadly, last week. The PCE has been cancelled and the Jasomon Live Events Division has been closed for an indefinite period of time. While there has been no public announcement made, there is one expected to be made very soon. Uh, there is some rumblings at MythMart about doing a large Black Friday and Cyber Monday deal with everything in stock. Um, the goal is to have... Oops. The goal is to have um, all the merchandise cleared out before 2023 so we can bring in all new merchandise. This week, the board of directors assembled and we had our monthly meeting and we discussed a whole crap ton of things. And that will all be in next week's housekeeping, I'm sure. Um, and you'll be able to read it in the minutes of... Uh, next month's magazine. Um, you've probably been wondering about the newsletter. And while Tim has been writing the newsletter, unfortunately, Facebook has been taking it down. I was putting it up on the world of myth, and uh, before it even got to be published, Facebook would um, give me some community vi guideline violation. <coughs> There was one that actually locked my account. Remember, the, I got the email. They locked my account to prevent me from posting anything. So um, the newsletter is kind of um, sitting on a back burner at the moment until we figure out where we're going with it from here. But most of the information that you get in the newsletter, you can find pretty much on our pages and in our magazine and in our podcasts. So I do want to thank Tim for um, the incredible job he is doing and has done on the newsletters. And no, I wasn't neglecting you, Tim. Facebook just didn't like you. <laughs> uh, but I still do. Anyway, so that is our housekeeping for this week. And um, yeah, here we go. Last episode before Halloween so I gotta make it a good one, don't I? I gotta add like some decent stuff. So, as you know, you know what? we're gonna save that part. We're gonna do the other stuff first. So right now I am in Perth Andover in New Brunswick. I am back out at Crystals. I'm here for a week <coughs> before I go home and I start doing the mad dash of sorting through all of my clothing. And just, you know, throwing everything that I want to take to California and Florida with me on my bed. And then I remove half of it because it wouldn't fit in 12 suitcases. Never mind just the two that I'm bringing and a backpack and a bag. No backpack. I don't know. I can, I have to, I'm flying from Florida to California. So I have to condense into two suitcases, everything I want to bring. So I throw everything that I want to wear. I just go through my closet. Oh, I like this. I like this. I like that. I like this. I like this. I like that. Throw it all in my bed. And then I turn around and go, oh, shit. <laughs> and and eliminate at least half of it. And then I go through it again and eliminate even more. 
and then I start packing it into the suitcase and eliminate even more. So I get to do that. So I'm here until Saturday. Sunday, possibly going to see my sister and brother-in-law's new place. And then packing and leaving on Tuesday. So the day I'm supposed to be recording this, um, I will actually be driving to Florida. So what I'll do is I will record on the 31st on actual Halloween so that there is an episode to be released that week because I don't know during that week when I'm going to have time to record and it takes about three days for us to drive to Florida and um, my mom and I will be sharing a hotel room and it's not fair for me to be yammering on for an hour and a half while she's trying to sleep and yada 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 whatever <coughs> and usually by the end of the you know, 10 hour day of driving, my brain is mush anyway. So I will record a couple of days beforehand so that it's ready for next week. But this week I am in New Brunswick. So I wanted to share with you some maritime ghost stories for this, you know, last Halloween episode. Well, no, I guess it's not really my last Halloween episode. If I'm going to record an episode on Halloween. Technically it's my last Halloween episode because Next episode, we'll be dealing with things in November. So, this is my last Halloween episode. But, you never know. There could be some surprises in store for next week. Anyway, so, we are going to, I'm going to share with you, since New Brunswick is a maritime province, we are on the east coast of Canada. So, the maritime provinces are Newfoundland, PEI, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. Then you get into Quebec, Ontario, um, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and then you're on the West Coast with BC. So, yep, had the song playing in my head. If you're Canadian, you know which one I mean. <coughs> so I thought I'd share, since I'm here, some scary ghost stories from the Maritime Provinces. So, now, so most of these are probably in Halifax because Halifax is one of the most haunted maritime provinces. So the very first one is the ghost of Peggy's Cove. Now, Peggy's Cove is fairly famous. I do believe Stephen King's even written about Peggy's Cove. It's one of Nova Scotia's most popular tourist destinations, and it's also one of the most haunted. Peggy's Cove is home to one of the province's most iconic lighthouses. If you're into lighthouses, then you'll know the Peggy's Cove Lighthouse. It is also the very same lighthouse. If you watched the um, TV show, oh, and the name escapes me. Of course it does. It's not Castle Rock. It was the one he did before Castle Rock. It's a Stephen King. Um, it was in Maine. Um... looking it up. I'm looking at under the dome. I wasn't under the dome, but I remember under the dome and that just makes me Haven. Haven. In the TV series Haven, there is a lighthouse and I'm pretty sure it's the Peggy's Cove lighthouse that they use in the opening scenes of Haven and in one of the, um, I mean, it's filmed in May. <laughs> <coughs> Everything Stephen King's done, 
Wrights is based in Maine, which is 10 minutes from New Brunswick, if that. Um, so it's also the home to a ghost of a woman named Margaret. Now, she settled there after an accident that claimed the life of her children. Margaret spent her days and evenings walking the dangerous rocks of the cove, grieving their loss. One day, in an attempt to cheer her up, Margaret's husband made his way out to the rocks to perform a dance. Tragically, he slipped and fell to his death. Note to self. Oops. <laughs> Note to self, don't dance on slippery, wet rocks. Um, absolutely inconsolable, Margaret jumped into the ocean, taking her own life. But she never really left Peggy's Cove. In fact, to this day, visitors report seeing a distraught woman in a blue dress standing on the rocks above the ocean. When they get too close, she jumps and disappears. All right, so the fire spook of Caledonia Mills. <coughs> in January of 1922, Alexander and Mary MacDonald lived in the remote community of Caledonia Mills with their adopted daughter, Mary Ellen. Considering it was the dead of winter, you wouldn't expect to hear the family that fled their home. But that's what happened after a series of fires mysteriously ignited throughout their farmhouse. Rumors swirled that Mary Ellen, their mysteriously adopted daughter, was the spawn of an evil spirit bent on destruction. I don't know if you could hear the eye roll. While she denied these accusations, they continued to mount and take their toll on her, eventually resulting in Mary Ellen being committed to an asylum. That said, her presence in the woods of Caledonia Mills remains. To this day, locals insist that if you visit the farm's remains in hopes of finding a spooky souvenir, you're asking for trouble. In fact, you might start discovering mysterious fires burning inside your own home. I think she was a pyromaniac. Ghosts of the Five Fishermen. Today, the Five Fishermen is a popular spot to grab a delicious meal in downtown Halifax. But the space it calls home wasn't always a restaurant. In fact, in the early 1900s, the building was a mortuary and funeral home, one that housed victims from the Titanic, as well as a Halifax explosion. <coughs> Some of these poor souls have decided to never leave the building. Definitely, at least according to those who have spent time at the Five Fishermen. Today, patrons and staff claim to hear mysterious whispers, see glasses flying off shelves, and on certain occasions witness haunting apparitions sporting clothing from, bygone, from a bygone era who are certainly not looking to make a reservation. Ooh, the Algonquin. It's kind of like Canada's answer to the Stanley. If you've read The Shining and you know any history about The Shining, you know the Stanley Hotel. Okay, so this iconic resort located in St. Andrews-by-the-Sea in New Brunswick, the Algonquin boasts beautiful views, iconic charms, and over 400 rooms. With so much to offer, it's no wonder more than one guest has decided to stick around the grounds. That's right, the Algonquin is home to multiple ghostly guests, including a night watchman who endlessly roams the hallways and stairwells of the resort. Legend has it, he makes his, his presence felt by jangling a mysterious set of keys. There's also a young child who can be heard, but never seen, laughing and playing throughout the expansive hotel. And, if you're spending the night, you may get a history lesson on the hotel itself 
from an old man who loves to talk, then vanish into thin air. Wollastock, the paranormal park. Sure, today Wollastock Park is a peaceful green space in St. John, but for 150 years, it was home to a healthcare facility once known as the Provincial Lunatic Asylum. I love asylums. Over the years, hundreds of patients were housed in this facility, and some remained long after the building was demolished. These days, visitors can claim to see former patients and staff wandering the park, <coughs> as well as mysterious shadowy figures. Not only that, reports of phantom crying babies, malfunctioning electronics, mysterious mist, and generally feelings of unspeakable dread continue to make this park a popular spot for fans of the paranormal. Excuse me while I uh, pop a halt. My throat's getting a little dry and I'm starting to sound a little, a little weird, a little raspy, a little crackly. So now you get to hear me suck on a halt. Better than hearing me cough. Mm. Ooh, that's lemon. It's a sour lemon. I lost my live studio audience. There he is. Can you hear me? Okay, making sure. The headless nun. Your phone's dying. Your phone's dying. The Headless Nun. Northern New Brunswick is home to one of the region's most ghoulish ghosts. The Headless Nun. Wandering French Fort Cove, the Headless Nun is the spirit of Sister Maria Inocu. Iconu, who was ruthlessly murdered by pirates after refusing to give up the location of a treasure stashed away in the newly settled community. Her silence cost her more than her life. It also cost her her head. To this day, she wanders the area, endlessly searching for her missing head and hoping to finally find peace. I'm wondering, you see where I'm going with this? There's an urban legend about a headless horseman. Hmm. The King's Playhouse. Georgetown's King's Playhouse is one of the oldest community theaters <coughs> on Prince Edward Island as well as all of Canada. Over time, the actors gracing its stage have put on performances of a lifetime and an after-lifetime. This theater is home to Captain George, who is said to love a great night of entertainment, so much so that a front row seat is reserved every night just for him. He's not watching the performances. The captain is known for playing tricks with the lights occasionally causing them to flicker at random as well as reaching out to touch patrons with his phantom hand during performances. <coughs> the the, the Deblois tracks. Trains don't run on Prince Edward Island anymore, but that doesn't mean they're no longer there. That's especially true when you're walking the Confederation Trail near Deblois. The Confederation Trail follows the path of a railroad track destroyed by a terrible train accident during a snowstorm many centuries ago. 
These days, when you're out walking, it's not uncommon to hear a haunting phantom train whistle, as well as see a mysterious orb of light floating along where the tracks used to be. As the legend goes, this orb is the train engineer, train's engineer desperately trying to prevent the tragedy for all eternity. So, that's kind of cool. There's some neat things around here. <coughs> Let me see where we're sitting. Oh, jeez, we're only 19 minutes in. Carry on, carry on. Alright, so now we're going to go over to some real ghost stories that will send some shivers down your spine. So, the best ghost, ghost and scary stories feel so real, so believable, so utterly chilling that they virtually guarantee you're at least one night, if not more, spent tossing and turning while listening for creaky floors and the sounds of ghostly moans. Of course, that is the paradox inherent in ghost stories. The better they are, the worse you'll sleep at night. This is true even if you're a dyed-in-the-wool supernatural believer. You know, the type of person who has memorized details about Halloween's origins, isn't scared to eyes some creepy photos, knows the backstory behind Halloween monsters, and spends Friday the 13th reading Ouija board stories. That wouldn't be me at all. Not even a little. <coughs> In the spirit of the season, this website, which is Reader's Digest, has rounded up some spooky stories. All of them based on true events. Now, if you remember last week, I was telling you, it was last week I was talking about urban legends, or the week before, talking about urban legends, and how they're usually based in some form of truth. So, we're going to get into some of those stories that may have inspired some urgent, ur, urban, urgent, urban legends. So turn off your lights. You're brave enough. Get ready for ghost stories so real and so terrifying, you won't sleep through the night. My live studio audience will because, you know, he's weird that way. This one is called Little Hands. And I'm going to read it just as it's written. And when I read the title, Little Hands, it kind of takes me to um, the Blair Witch Project at the end with those little hands, little painted hands on the walls. I mean, I get it. The Blair Witch Project was a, a mockumentary, but that was a creepy scene with the guy standing in the corner and the little hands. And yeah, it was creepy. Anyway, so it says, I've never lived in a haunted house, but my mother did as a teen, writes Reddit.com user patented space hook recounting a true event other houses on her street had strange things going on too a few homes away from her lived a family one night the daughter went to bed with a bad headache the next day she was dead she died from an aneurysm after her funeral the family went away to get their minds off the tragedy and the father asked my uncle my mom's brother to check on their pets my mom and dad who were dating at the time went with them my mother had heard that there was a grand piano and she wanted to play it. My dad was studying to be a veterinarian. After entering the house, my uncle and my father headed to the basement to see the animals, and my mother went to the piano on the ground floor. She was playing it when she felt something brush her ankles. She thought a cat must have left the basement and walked past her. She kept playing, and again she felt it. She felt it again. <coughs> she looked under the piano and saw nothing. 
When she started again, she felt the hands clasp her legs tightly. She dashed to the basement door, called my uncle and father, and waited for them. Okay, you know what? I'm sorry. If something grabs me by the ankles, I'm going to be down the stairs in the basement with the big men. Or tripping my happy ass out the front door. <laughs> Not going to be waiting at the top of the stairs for nobody. Back outside, my uncle could tell my mom was rattled and asked what was wrong. She told him what had happened and he turned white. He told her the daughter who had died used to play a game with her father. When he played the piano, she'd crawl underneath, grab his ankles, and push his feet up and down on the pedals. That's a little creepy. <coughs> now, for all of you that work in healthcare, this one's for you. The Phantom Patient. The ambulance company. Oh, my live studio audience has had experiences like this. He can relate. He's got goosebumps. I haven't even started reading the story yet. The ambulance company that I used to work for had a haunted ambulance rig. 12. Recounts Reddit user Zerbo. A lot of EMTs had stories about it, but I'd never put much stock in paranormal stuff. That is until I had my own experience with Rig 12. My partner and I were working in a rural community at 3 a.m., and it was pitch dark and completely quiet. We were both dozing. I was in the driver's seat, and she was in the passenger seat. I woke up to a muffled voice, but I thought my partner was talking. I told her I was trying to sleep and closed my eyes. I distinctly heard a male voice say, Oh my God, am I dying? Followed by a few seconds of heavy breathing, my partner and I sat, sat up straight and looked back into the patient compartment, where it sounded like the voice had come from. Things were quiet for a couple of seconds. Then we heard the click of an oxygen bottle regulator and a hiss, as if it was leaking. I turned on the lights and we ran out of the rig. I thought a transient might have climbed in while we were asleep. While we were asleep. So we opened the rear doors. No one was there. I checked the oxygen bottles. Neither was opened. We didn't sleep much after that. The next one, The Impish Ghost. Now, these are just short stories. My neighbor Diane and I had a playful poltergeist for years, and we called it Billy. So begins Reddit.com user Abby's Alibi in their real-life ghost story. I'd come home and find something put in a weird place. Milk in a cupboard, toilet paper in the fridge, laundry detergent in the bathtub, Okay, I'd be a little upset about the milk in the cupboard. Milk's expensive. Diane once called to ask if Billy had been around because she couldn't find a gallon of milk. Finally found it outside on her back steps. And sugar. Darn sugar. Every morning, my sugar bowl was empty. When I'd had enough, I would point to Diane's home and yell, Go see Diane. Within five minutes, I'd get a call from her. Thanks a lot, she'd say. He'd gone and pulled shenanigans at her place. This occurred for the entire two years we lived there. No one believed us. Not even our husbands. My mother thought someone was stealing from us when we were sleeping or out of the house. My sister believed something was going on but didn't know what. Still can't explain any of it. <coughs> Ooh, the eerie... <coughs> the... <coughs> The Eerie Attic. 
Before Reddit.com user DiggsDaws got down to recounting the scariest of ghost stories about living in a place that was obviously teeming with honest-to-goodness members of the spiritual world, they pointed out the irony of ghost stories that begin with the phrase, I don't believe in ghosts, but, after all, no matter how a ghost story begins, it always hinges on the notion that, come on, of course, we believe in ghosts. A few years ago, I moved into a one-bedroom apartment in Melbourne, Australia. They went on to recall, it was my first time living on my own. The apartment block had been built in 1930. I'd been there a few months when I came home from work one day and went to the bathroom. I saw something strange, a wooden board, which had covered a hole in the ceiling that led to a small attic space. They fractured in two pieces on the ground. I examined the pieces. The board was about an inch thick, and it would have taken Bruce least to break it. I thought the landlord had sent someone up to work on the attic. I was frozen stiff with fear. Someone was up there for sure, I thought. I emailed pictures to the landlord asking if anyone had been there, with an undertone of annoyance, since she hadn't warned me. Her reply read, Please call me as soon as you are able to. I called, and she explained that her last two tenants had said the same thing happened. She promised to replace the board, and she did. A month later, I woke up one night around 4 a.m. My body was covered in goosebumps. It felt like someone was rubbing his or her hands on me. Everything was silent, but then I heard a dragging sound coming from above my bed. It was as if someone was pulling a sack of potatoes. I froze, convinced someone was up there. There was no way an animal could make that sound. After five minutes, I worked up the courage to turn on the light, armed myself with a cricket bat, and walked to the bathroom. That's when I saw that the new board covering the hole was broken in two. I felt sick. The dragging sound had stopped, but I heard something else whispering. The sound was clear and coming from the attic. It sounded like children's voices, and I could hear one sentence repeated over and over. It's your turn. It's your turn. I switched on every light in the apartment to make things feel normal. It was 5 a.m. and dark outside. I watched TV to try and unwind. Then a fuse blew. My pet budgie Dexter, Dexter, whom I kept in the kitchen, usually never made a sound at night but he started squawking like he was being strangled. I'd never heard him make those sorts of noises. He was screaming. Grabbed my car keys, ran out, sat in my car, and waited there until the sun came up. When I saw people walking their dogs, this comforted me enough to go back in. The front door was open, but I figured I might have forgotten to close it when I ran out. I went to the kitchen to check on Dexter, but he wasn't in his cage. I felt sick again. All my windows were closed, so I looked everywhere inside. When I walked into the bathroom, I heard splashing. Dexter was half-drowned in the toilet. I took him out, washed him, and dried him. <clears throat> I was so confused. At 8 a.m., I called the landlord and gave her a watered-down version of the night. Oh, wow. You heard the whispering, too, she said. I stayed in the apartment another 18 months. I heard the whispering on a few occasions, and twice the board covering the hole in the ceiling moved. Although I, lived I live elsewhere now, the landlord recently called. She said that her new tenants had begged to speak with me about some of the stuff that's been going on there. Forget it. It's their problem now. Alright, next one. A boy with no eyes. One night... When I was 10, 
I was woken up by my bedroom door opening, followed by someone sitting on my bed. Reddit.com user Commendo4 recalls of a childhood brush with a very persistent ghostly apparition. I felt my leg grazed in the bed sink under a person's weight. It's just mom, thought. <coughs> and I opened my eyes. It was not my mom. I found an eyeless boy. He had black, empty sockets. About my age, sitting at the foot of my bed, he extended his hand, and in it was a little box. I was startled, but reached out. He pulled back. I reached again and said, Give it. Then I blinked, and when I reopened my eyes, he was gone. But I could still see the imprint of where he'd sat on my bed. Fast forward five years. A girlfriend came over to do homework. After she finished, she took a nap while she waited for her parents. When they arrived, I tried waking her up. She opened her eyes suddenly, looking up at the corner where the wall met the ceiling. She pointed there and went back to sleep. I shook her again. She came to full consciousness, and I explained what she'd done. She looked haunted. Up on the wall, I saw a little boy with no eyes. He was there, in a Spider-Man pose, staring at me. I freaked out and told her my story about the same kid. Fast forward another five years. I was with the same girlfriend, and we had a two-year-old. We were living in my parents' house in my old room. My daughter started waking up at the same time every night, and she'd talk. After a while, I noticed that she had almost the same conversation every night. I playfully asked her once whom she was talking to. She said, it's a little boy. He's nice. He's lost and looking for his mommy. My daughter's nightly conversations continued until we got a place of our own that year. Yep, get out. The Red Lady of Huntington College. Here's a story that dates back to 1910. <coughs> but almost any student at Huntington College in Montgomery, Alabama should recognize it. It's because the events that led up to it are said to have actually happened. As the story goes, in 1910, a young woman who was new to the school was known for her love of the color red. Sadly, she was also known for being strange and a loner. As the first term got underway, the young woman grew increasingly isolated. Eventually, she took her life by slashing her wrists. Her body was discovered in a red gown drenched in blood. From then on, students and faculty have been reported reporting sightings of a young woman dressed in all red. She appeared all around the college's campus. The figure, dwelling in perpetual isolation, is often cited as a reminder of the importance of being kind to one's peers. The Ashley Street Ghost Huntington College is just one of the many haunted colleges in America, each with its own ghost stories. The next true tale comes from the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This haunting happened in 1972 <coughs> at a party hosted by University of Michigan students living on Ashley Street. A 15-year-old girl who probably had no business being there in the first place suddenly felt a strange, bone-chilling cold. In an attempt to warm up, she went upstairs because, you know, heat rises. And that's when things went really, really awry. One of the walls of the house started moving, and a black shadow approached the girl. Meanwhile, downstairs, posters were spontaneously popping off the walls and falling into a growing pile on the floor. 
The girl wandered back downstairs where she found herself saying these strange words. The drugs and addiction were my fault, and I accept responsibility for that. But I was not that way deep down inside. I want to apologize to everyone involved for what I've done. What made those words even stranger was that the girl did not do drugs, let alone have an addiction. <coughs> Her words didn't seem all that strange to the students who lived in the house. Before they moved in, the house had been inhabited by a man with a very serious addiction. The reason he no longer lived there? He had died of a heroin overdose. Yup. The ghost of Frederick Jordan. Any more of these we got? The real-life ghost story concerns a man named Frederick Jordan, who held one of the most lonely and desolate jobs in existence. Jordan was the lighthouse keeper for Penfield Reef Lighthouse off the coast of Fairfield, Connecticut. Built in 1874, the lighthouse was primarily a way of warning ships of a treacherous hidden reef responsible for more than its fair share of harbor accidents. 1916, Frederick Jordan was the head, of light, head lighthouse keeper. Tragically, he drowned in a boating accident just before Christmas of that year, when he was caught in a gale while rowing home to see his family. Ever since then, lighting and equipment malfunctions in the lighthouse have been blamed on Jordan's spiritual presence. But even more chilling is that the keepers of the Penfield Reef Lighthouse often find the lighthouse logbook opened to the day Jordan died and locals have recounted witnessing an unidentifiable figure appearing on the water to help stray boats find their way to safety near the reef. <coughs> Here we go. This is one of my favorites. The Lost Colony of Roanoke. Roanoke... Mm. Roanoke Colony one of the first European settlements in the United States, located on an island off the coast of what is now the state of North Carolina. The colony was established in 1578 under the auspices of the first Queen Elizabeth. Soon after, the colony's leader, John White, returned to England from where the settlers came. His trip was meant to be brief. He was only meant to grab supplies and return to the New World. But political upheaval in the form of England's war with Spain prevented White from returning until 1590. It was only three years, but a lot had changed when John White returned. In fact, the entire colony, consisting at the time of 115 people, including a newborn baby by the name of Virginia Dare, was gone. Just up and vanished. All that was left was a post onto which the word Croatoan had been carved. Croatoan referred to the name of a native tribe that had been on good terms with the settlers, so White thought the colonists had moved to Croatoan Island, now known as Hatteras, North Carolina, but they had not. It remains one of the most famous disappearances that no one can explain to this very day. What's more, there's never been any evidence to suggest the colony was massacred. Many believe that baby Virginia grew into a beautiful young woman, one who eventually fell into a doomed love affair with a native warrior by the name of Orquisco. To this day, she haunts the woods in search of her man, often in the form of a di di diaphanous white deer, one that always vanishes at dawn 
According to NCpedia, a state encyclopedia maintained by the North Carolina Government and Heritage Library, longtime residents of the island have no doubt that the identity of the phantom deer is the ghost of Virginia Dare. That's kind of cool. This is a story of two young princes. And no, I'm not going to sing the song. Brothers Edward and Richard, who were imprisoned in the Tower of London to prevent them from becoming king and heir apparent, respectively. In April 1483, when King Edward IV died, his eldest son, Edward V, who was just 12 years old, briefly became king. Because of his young age, he had a regent appointed. That regent was the young king's uncle, known as the Duke of Gloucester. This uncle was known to be deeply resentful that the boys even existed. If it weren't for them, he would have been the next in line of succession. What happened next is shrouded in mystery. Indeed, it is one of the strangest British royal family mysteries. It appears that the young king and his brother, Richard, Duke of York, were kidnapped and locked away in the Tower of London, after which the Duke of Gloucester declared himself King Richard III. The two young princes were never seen or heard from again, and two small skeletons that were eventually found in the tower are believed to be all that's left of them, other than the ghostly apparitions, that is. British papers have reported on visitors who claim to have seen the ghostly figures. Makes you wonder if um, the man in the iron mask was inspired by that particular tale. <coughs> One more. We've got one more short story. And then we move on to um, the meat of this episode. One theme that many ghost stories have in common is that they offer a sense of justice in return for a wrongful death. This particular ghost story, however, offers a somewhat different take. It's about wrongful treatment in death and revenge in the afterlife. On October 13, 1877, Robert Schmale was hanged after a trial that found him guilty of a terrifying and inexplicable murder spree. The townspeople were filled with so much anger and hatred that they left his body hanging for days. The tale says that not one of the townspeople demonstrated even a shred of remorse, let alone forgiveness. Since then, Schmale has been said to haunt the town. Those who have seen him say he appears as a ghostly male figure, but as soon as the figure registers in your mind, it disappears, somewhat maddeningly, into the darkness. And those are my ghost stories for tonight. Now, we're going to move on to something a little more sinister. Because remember, on Tuesday, unwelcomed stories of hauntings and tales of hauntings and possessions was released. So let's talk a little bit about hauntings and possessions. What makes a possession? What is a true possession? Hold on. need to find the um, paranormal definition of possession. 
Hold on. This needs a word. In front of possession. Okay. Okay, here we go. So, according to the APA, which is the American Psychological Association, demonic possession is the supposed invasion of the body by an evil spirit or devil that gains control of the mind or soul, producing mental disorder, physical illness, or criminal behavior. Many... <coughs> <coughs> Many forms of physical and psychological illness were formerly attributed to such possession, notably epilepsy, schizophrenia, and Tourette's. The traditional remedy for possession was ritual exorcism. Keeping in mind, this is the Dictionary of Psychology. That is the definition from the Dictionary of Psychology. Not Wikipedia. I went to a smart place to get the definition for that one. So that is the definition of a demonic possession. So, definition of haunting. Poignant, evocative, difficult to ignore or forget. To visit a person or place in the form of a ghost. To intrude upon or recur to the memory, thoughts, etc. He was haunted by the fear of insanity. So haunting is actually a verb. The act of haunting. Visitation or inhabitation by a ghost. As an adjective, having qualities such as sadness or beauty that linger in the memory, not easily forgotten. That is the haunt, the definitions for possession <coughs> and hauntings. So now we're going to delve into the two biggest names in the demonic possession field. That if you are in this paranormal field, even if you're not, you will recognize the names of Ed and Lorraine Warren. Can't be an October-ish episode. Can't be a Halloween episode if I don't mention Ed and Lorraine at least once. I do believe I did last time with the whole Conjuring series, but they were the biggest names, the foremost experts, and I say that with air quotes, because there is no, you can't go to school and get a master's in demonology. You can't. Or parapsychology. These were the experts in this field. Now, these are strange and terrifying cases that continue to haunt us today that Ed and Lorraine investigated. So, demonologists, authors, lecturers, and occult museum owners Ed and Lorraine Warren were two of the world's most well-renowned <coughs> paranormal investigators. Their casework, much of which was carried out through their New England Society for Psychic Research, involved everything from exorcisms alongside priests, seances, and spirit cleansings, to photographic documentation of supernatural events. It also brought them to people and places around the country, resulting in supernatural accounts so disturbing they've inspired numerous box office adaptations. These six Warren family cases caught 
the, count, the country's attention. The very, very, very first one is the parent family haunting. You've seen The Conjuring. You've met the parent family. Well, Roger and Carolyn Perrin moved their family, including their five young daughters, to their new 200-acre home in Harrisville, Rhode Island, they were unaware of its allegedly insidious former resident. Originally built in 1736, the country home was once inhabited by Bathsheba Thayer and her four children, three of whom died young. Despite the era's high infant mortality rates, those deaths and the circumstances around them roused suspicion within the town, resulting in the ostracism of Thayer. Labeled a Satanist by her community members, she allegedly hanged herself in the backyard. While the Perrin family lived in the home, numerous pleasant ghostly interactions, like spirits playing with the children or helping to do the chores, were reported. But so were darker interactions from ghosts like theirs, who took a more menacing presence in the home. Disembodied voices, furniture moving on its own, Full spectral appearances were among the many ghostly experiences shared by the parent family. Matriarch Carolyn was, alleged, was allegedly one of Thayer's most consistent targets, supposedly jealous of the living woman's role as both mother and wife. The ghost reportedly pinched and slapped Carolyn quite a bit, and even touched Robert inappropriately on several occasions. What if you could be accused for cheating if you get groped by a ghost? Yes, you can. Yes. Yes. The Warrens were brought in to help in 1974, but their presence aggravated the conditions and Thayer's supposed ghost, so much that the family eventually asked them to leave. Horror icon James Wan used the parents' family experience in his box office hit The Conjuring in 2013. So the real-life story does not end the way the movie ends with the Warrens saving the day. No, parent family told them to get to hell out. The second, and probably the most famous Warren case ever, hands down, I'm waiting for the movie. Thought the last one was gonna be it, but it wasn't. I'll probably end the franchise on this movie is the Amityville case. <coughs> Arguably, the most famous of Ed and Lorraine Warren's paranormal investigations. This investigation has been adapted into a frightening and seemingly unending film franchise. This Warren case involved the Lutz family. The Lutzes took up residence in a suburban Dutch colonial house in Amityville, Long Island in 1975. Only a year before their move-in, the residence had been the site of a deadly mass murder when Ronald DeFeo Jr. brutally killed six members of his family. For 28 days, the Lutzes and their three children lived in that very same house. While their family reported antagonistic voices, swarms of flies, welts, family members levitating, banging noises, and unseen entities. Ed and Lorraine Warren were eventually called in to cleanse the house and brought a local TV crew with them. After snapping photos, including one featuring a boy with glowing eyes, the Warrens determined that the land had curses on it in 2013, in a 2013 interview with Yahoo, Lorraine Warren said the Amityville house was the one case that haunts her the most. Amityville was horrible, she said, during a press conference for The Conjuring. 
was absolutely horrible. It followed us right straight across the country. I will never go in the Amityville house ever again. She's dead now, so. Did you say wow? Yeah. Number three, Annabelle the doll. She's a real thing. The investigation took the Warrens to a thing rather than a place. More specifically, a Raggedy Ann doll that was purchased in an antique store. A much less sinister imagining than her 2014 Annabelle film counterpart. Film counterpart. Given to the buyer's daughter, the nursing student and her roommate quickly began to notice odd circumstances involving the doll, such as changing positions or rooms that eventually escalated to messages on paper and blood in the doll's eyes. And at one point, violence. Annabelle took particular aim at the fiancé of one roommate, who claims he woke up frozen in bed as the doll crawled up his body and strangled him. He also allegedly claimed that upon entering a darkened room where the doll rested, he felt something attack him. When he flipped the switch, he saw his stomach covered in blood, bloody scratches and the doll on the floor. Behavior freaked the roommates out so much that they called in a medium, who explained that she believed the doll was possessed by the spirit of a deceased seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins. <coughs> Higgins had reportedly died on the land where the apartment stood. The Warren family also got involved, determining that a demonic presence was in fact behind the doll. They performed a blessing on the residents before taking Annabelle off, to the young, off of the young woman's hands. Annabelle has since become a permanent a prominent fixture in the Warren's Connecticut Occult Museum. One of my favorite movies. One of my favorite movies. There's also one in Georgia, but in Georgia, but this is Haunting in Connecticut. In 1986, Carmen and Al Snedeker rented a home in Southington, Connecticut, to be closer to the hospital where their son was receiving treatment. Unfortunately, the family had little knowledge about the residence's strange and gruesome past. The former funeral home came complete with the remnants of a mortuary in the basement and a graveyard outside. Upon moving in, their eldest son began seeing terrifying visions of ghosts. The family would uncover the existence of toe tags in the house regularly. Lights often flickered, dishes would shake, the smell of decaying flesh hovered, and reportedly water would, on occasion, turn blood red. Carmen and Al even alleged that the demons had sodomized them during their two-year period there. Okay, I'm sorry, but if that happened to me once, I wouldn't be staying an extra year and a half. I wouldn't be staying an extra minute. <laughs> the Snedekers asked Ed and Lorraine Warren for help, and the investigators attributed the hauntings to the ghosts of those who were brought to the funeral home. According to the Warrens, the morticians partook in unsavory activities with the dead bodies. After a two-year stay, the Snedekers finally moved out. Like the parents' story, the Snedekers' haunting was immortalized in film. The South End Werewolf Perhaps one of the more unusual cases from Ed and Lorraine Warren, Warren's case list, this investigation took the Warrens out of the U.S. to a seaside town in Essex, England. There, a man by the name of Bill Ramsey was believed to be possessed by a demon 
that manifested as a wolf. Growing up, Ramsey was a normal, happy boy. One day, though, at the young age of nine, he suddenly began exhibiting inhuman qualities. Reportedly, while playing outside in his backyard, Ramsey felt a frigid cold overtake him. His nostrils were overcome with an awful stench before he flew into a rage. <coughs> Uprooting a fence post, fence still attached, and gnawing on its wire meshing. Ramsey eventually grew up, became a loving husband and father of free, three, and was incident-free until the 60s. The early years of his marriage were plagued by nightmares, cold sweats, and waking up to the pants of a wild animal, which he soon realized were coming from him. In the 1980s, Bill would repeatedly feel overcome by the sensation he had as a child while hanging out with his friends, and even once while during his, doing a citizen's arrest. At one point, he attacked a friend in a car on their way from a pub and manhandled police in intense altercations on several occasions. In the midst of this, Ramsey spent several stints in the hospital, all featuring the same symptoms of rage, inhuman strength, bared teeth, growling, hunched shoulders, and hands curled like claws. In an interview with the Warrens about their experience with Ramsey, Ed Warren stated that Ramsey would ask to be locked up in a jail cell for his protection and the protection of the public. When the Warrens got wind of Ramsey's situation, they asked him to their Connecticut home where Bishop Robert McKenna would perform a recorded exorcism on, on Ramsey. Now, this is the last movie that The Conjuring Verse has done. <clears throat> the Trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. In this landmark trial, paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren were called to testify on behalf of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, the first known case in the U.S. to use the devil-made-me-do-it defense. On the evening of February 16, 1981, 19-year-old Johnson engaged Debbie Glatzel and out for dinner with her, their landlord, Alan Bono, and others, stabbed Bono multiple times using a pocket knife. Johnson would plead not guilty by possession, a defense founded on Johnson's relationship with his soon-to-be wife's younger brother, David. In the summer of 1980, David woke up to what he described as a man with black eyes, a thin face with animal features and jagged teeth, pointed ears, horns, and hooves. The demon's description mirrors the creature from horror hit Insidious, and apparently scared David so much that Debbie turned to Arnie for help. Johnson couldn't find a reasonable explanation for David's bruises or scratches, so the family pivoted to a priest. That supposedly only angered the entity, causing it to make David hiss, speak in multiple voices, and quote, Paradise Lost. The Warrens were brought in, and in an interview with People magazine, Lorraine stated that while Ed interviewed the boy, I saw a black, misty form next to him, which told me we were dealing with something of a negative nature. Soon the child was complaining that invisible hands were choking him, and there were red marks on him. He said that he had the feeling of being hit. The Warrens supposedly worked with the Diocese of Bridgeport, and four priests were brought in to exorcise more than 40 demons from David. The diocese had admitted to investigating the Glatzel case, but allegedly the events that David returned to normal. 
Ernie, however, became their alleged new target. After moving in with Debbie and going to dinner at a bar with Bono, a fight between the two older men broke out and Johnson stabbed Bono. Johnson's defense didn't hold up in court, and he was found guilty of first-degree manslaughter, serving out only five years of his initially longer sentence. And that is the six cases of Ed Lorraine Warren. Now, let's see what we've got, how much time we've got. Okay, so we're at the hour mark. <coughs> These are not very long, so I'm going to read them. They're kind of creepy. But these are nine disturbing cases of real-life exorcism and possession. Kind of goes with the theme of our book. For most, the concept of possession comes from what we see in movies and books. But for those poor souls involved in the alleged cases below, the forces at work were frighteningly real. From super strength and speaking in tongues to levitation, here are nine real exorcism stories and cases of demonic possession. Annalise Mitchell. Perhaps one of the most terrifying exorcism cases in history, Annalise Mitchell's story went on to inspire the 2005 film The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mitchell, a young German woman, had struggled from an early age with mental illness. Diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, she, was, she also experienced depression and visual and auditory hallucinations, for which she was hospitalized. With time, her symptoms intensified, growing to include an aversion towards religious iconography. <coughs> Both she and her Catholic family attributed her condition to demonic possession, and, beginning at 22, she underwent an intense 10 months of Catholic exorcism rites. Nearly 70 exorcisms were performed in secrecy under the order of the church. In July of 1976, Mitchell passed away. An autopsy declared her death was the result of emaciation, malnutrition, and starvation at the hands of her priests and her family, who had, during the exorcisms, discontinued consultations with doctors family and priests involved were investigated, charged with negligent homicide, and found guilty of manslaughter, serving six months in jail and three years probation. Anna Uckland. Often said to include speaking in tongues and strange guttural voices, levitating and clinging to bedroom walls, disturbed thoughts and revulsion of holy objects in sacred spaces, Uckland's possession spanned several decades beginning in 1912, when she was just 14 years old. Her case was so well known that it served as the basis for a time profile of the priest in charge of her exorcism, Father Theophilus Riesinger. Anna's demonic possession was reportedly the result of a curse put on the devout Catholic in 1908 by her caretakers, her father and her aunt Mina. Mina was widely believed to be the lover of Anna's father, as well as a witch who used spelled herbs in Eklund's food to put her under the demonic spell. Father Carl Vogel penned an account of Anna's possession in a pamphlet published in 1936 called Begone, Satan, 
a soul-stirring account of diabolical possession in Iowa. The first exorcism performed on Eckland in 1912 was successful for a time, but Eckland would be possessed again by even more demons in 1928. Her second exorcism, which lasted three sessions, was held at a convent in Erling, Iowa, and was so grueling it resulted in the deterioration of Eckland's body. The demons were eventually exorcised, and Eckland went on to live her life, with only milder possessions after that. The Smurls Poltergeist Unlike many other well-known cases of demonic possession, the Smurl family claimed it was not a person who was possessed. Instead, they claimed their West Pitts in Pennsylvania double... Wow. Let's try that again. West Pitson, Pennsylvania, double block home, had been taken over by a poltergeist. The Smurl family's case was both highly publicized and heavily scrutinized, discredited by paranormal professionals and clergy who claimed on several occasions that nothing unusual was happening at the residence. However, paranormal investigators and demonologists, Ed and Lorraine Warren, claimed the house was occupied by a very powerful demon, performing several exorcisms on the home to rid it of the dark shadow they saw there. The unsuccessful exorcism was done in an attempt to stop the demon's alleged attacks on the family, which included loud banging, foul-smelling odors, shaken mattresses, physical and sexual assaults on one member of the family, others being pushed downstairs, and even their dog being thrown into a wall. In 1986, after publishing a book about their experiences, the family claimed intense prayer had helped return things to normal, although the family matriarch said that there were still some odd occurrences in 1987. Roland Doe In many ways, Uckland and Roland Doe, also known by another alias, Robbie Mannheim, <laughs> had similar experiences with possession including the fact both were catalogued and published by priests. Doe's experience became so notorious that it too was adapted into a film. His case was the inspiration for the 1973 horror classic, The Exorcist. After the passing of his aunt, the 13-year-old turned to a spirit board to commune with his beloved family member. Silly boy. Instead of inviting his aunt, Roland apparently invited something much more sinister. After the family became overwhelmed by weird occurrences, including odd noises, furniture moving by itself, and objects levitating when Roland was around, <coughs> they reached out to their Lutheran pastor, who, after monitoring Roland's behavior, declared that he should see a Catholic priest. He did. During the resulting exorcism, the boy slashed the Catholic priest's arm with a bedspring, temporarily putting an end to any further action. The family then moved to St. Louis, and saw three more priests who, with the permission of the Archbishop, carried out around 30 exorcisms on Roland in the psychiatric wing of a city hospital. Messages written on his skin, guttural voices, and extreme strength were noted in one priest's diary before the young boy was eventually freed of the malicious spirit, with no memory of the incident. Yes? Oh, I thought you were talking to me. Here's a good one. David Berkowitz, son of Sam. 
one of America's most notorious serial killers, claimed to have been possessed during his spree, blaming the, de blaming the demons for the murders of six New York residents. In the year between 1976 and 1977, Berkowitz would terrorize the residents of the city's five boroughs, murdering six and wounding seven. Violent spree he attributed to Papa Sam, a mysterious evil figure Berkowitz referenced in the letters he left at his crime scenes. After his capture, it was revealed that Sam was the dog of his neighbor, Sam Carr. Berkowitz claimed in his prison diaries that the animal was possessed by a 6,000-year-old man named Sam, an alcoholic who consumed human blood. Berkowitz also claimed that the spirits locked him in the attic and commanded him to kill through the dog. He told me to kill through his dog, as he usually does, David wrote in his diaries, before revealing concern that he may one day evolve into a humanoid or demon in a more complete state. Although Berkowitz has gone back and forth, sometimes sticking with the possession story, sometimes recanting it, he, to this day, believes that his crimes were part of an epic struggle between God and the devil. There are some outside of Berkowitz's head that believe that as well. Okay. Strange case of Michael Taylor. <clears throat> Unlike several other well-known cases of exorcism, Michael Taylor's did not end in a return to normalcy. After Christine Taylor accused her increasingly erratic and socially distant husband of adultery with their church group leader during a meeting, Taylor lashed out at both his wife and his alleged mistress. In a short time, his terrifying behavior increased in frequency and intensity, and it was decided that Michael would be seen by priests. Following a full night of exhaustive exorcism sessions, the priest claims that they had pulled upwards of 40 demons from Taylor, but that several remained inside him when they, went, when they sent him home. Upon his return, he violently murdered his wife and strangled the family poodle to death. Okay, I can kind of understand the poodle. He was picked up by police after wandering the neighborhood streets soaked in blood. Clara Germana Seeley. The case of Clara Germana Seeley takes us all the way to a mission school in Umzito, South Africa. A 16-year-old student was allegedly possessed in the late summer of 1906 after making a pact with the devil. As word about the pact reached one of the school priests, Clara's behavior began to become erratic and intensified rapidly with witnesses claiming that the young girl developed a strong aversion to holy objects, tore her clothes, talked to things that weren't visible, and growled like an animal. She also gained knowledge of other languages, supposedly levitated up to five feet off the ground, exhibited human, superhuman strength, and relayed personal information about others she shouldn't have been able to know, all trademarks of possession. Two priests perform an exorcism that lasted more than a day but another became necessary in January of 1907, after the girl admitted she had made yet another pact with the devil. Another exorcism was allegedly performed, this time lasting two days before she was freed from the demon. Okay, so if you're an alcoholic, 
and you break your liver and they give you a new one, if you break, drink and break that liver too, they're not going to give you another one. So if you make a pact with the devil, the priests come in and they exercise you and they make you all back to normal. If you do it again, you should be locked in a cell and have to deal with your demons. Just saying. All right. So I think we're going to end our little foray into um, real hauntings and real possessions. And I'm going to end this podcast with a story. Okay. I was missing about 4,000 words. <laughs> a little panic set in. I'm just going to read it to you. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'm not going to add any comments. I'm just going to read it. This is my story in Unwelcomed Tales of Hauntings and Possessions. So this is the caliber of things that are in this book. This is a story that needed to be told, not for fame or popularity, not for entertainment or accolades. But as a cautionary tale, this is based on real events. I know I was an unwilling participant in those events. Names have been changed. Liberties have been taken with the generalization of the story. But the actual events of the possession are real. I still have the scars to prove it. The entity. Psst. The crack of a beer caught Sarah's attention. Hey, where's mine? She asked. Charlie tossed her a can. Whiner, he joked. He said jokingly. She pulled the tab and took a sip. They had worked hard and this was their reward. Thought in the pool. Sarah sat her beer on the edge of the pool and shifted in the pink floaty she was lying in. Remember that house I was telling you about? The one I'm doing the renos for, Charlie said as he bobbed around in the deep end. The one in Rocky Creek, she asked. Yeah, he replied. I think it's haunted. Sarah sat up and slid off the floaty. He had her complete attention. She was a paranormal investigator in her free time. She wasn't ashamed to admit she was obsessed with it, with finding definitive proof of the paranormal. Sarah needed to know there was something more after this life. Oh, she asked as calmly as she could. She didn't want to sound too eager. Can you get me in? He nodded. Yeah, I was hoping you could get rid of it or something. It kind of creeps me out and it's messing with my tools. Sarah laughed. That is something that is reported often when it comes to the paranormal. She hadn't been on a site in a long time and was very excited at the prospect of investigation again. When do you want to go? She would have gone right then if he had said so. Let's check it out tomorrow night after dinner, he said. Sarah's sister was married to Charlie's brother, so they had known each other for several years. Working out together on the Renos at their sibling's house had brought them even closer. They were like siblings themselves. Each night during the week, the family went to bed early. Since neither Sarah nor Charlie had any interest in sleeping at 8 p.m., they spent the evening watching movies, swimming, or talking about everything. After dinner was the perfect time to go ghost hunting. It was June, the beginning of summer, so the evenings were getting warmer and the sun was taking longer to go down. Sarah grinned at Charlie. It's a date. Charlie laughed and the two continued to swim and chat for a couple of more hours before calling it a night. Charlie called his wife to say goodnight and Sarah retreated to her spot in the music room. She chatted with her best friend for a bit and drifted off to sleep. Her dreams that night were filled with the feeling of being chased. 
When she awoke in the morning, she brushed them off as having had too much salsa and chips before bed. The two worked hard all day and shared their plans at dinner with the family. Don't be bringing anything back with you, cautioned Sarah's sister, tongue-in-cheek. She didn't really believe in any of it, but was willing to humor her older sister. Her husband was even more skeptical. Just make sure you lock the door when you leave, he grumbled. The two nodded, and as soon as the dishes were cleaned up, they were in Sarah's car and on their way. So, tell me what's going on, Sarah said. What are you seeing? Charlie fiddled with the K2 and the temp gun as he stared out the window. I feel like I'm being watched all the time, especially when I'm on the main level, right at the bottom of the stairs. It's like he, it, whatever, is standing at the top glaring at me. He looked down at the equipment in his hands. What are these for? Sarah glanced over at him. The gray one is the K2. It will pick up electromagnetic energy. It is believed that spirits give off that energy. The orange gun is... Charlie cut her off. I work construction. I know what this is. He aimed the temp gun at his chest, pulled the trigger, and, and it beeped. He looked at the screen and laughed. Yep, still hot. Sarah laughed. Does it check for vanity as well? Charlie stuck his tongue out at her. I don't know what it is, but I put my tools in one spot, come back to get them, and they are moved. Sometimes all of them, sometimes just a screwdriver or my drill. Sarah's face took on a thoughtful expression. Are you sure you aren't just forgetting that you moved them? Charlie gave her a sardonic look. It didn't forget. Hey, you're the one with the head injury. You admit yourself that you forget all the time because of it. You take meds for your memory, for Pete's sakes. Don't give me that side eye. Sarah quipped indignantly. Charlie laughed. Yeah, yeah, but even Elias has asked about the tools. He's put stuff down and it has been moved and I wasn't even there. Sarah went into professional mode. So, they have a suspected poltergeist activity. What else? Charlie recounted the strange events he had experienced thus far. Cold spots, the faint talking, and the ever-present feeling, the ever-present feeling of being watched. <coughs> it was the loss of time that really struck her. Charlie was known to be flaky when it came to keeping track of time, but that was usually when he needed to be someplace. I was working on the tile, and it was like I fell asleep, and then I was looking at a burger frying. He sighed heavily and looked out the window. I'm pissed all the time. Fighting with Alexandria, fighting with my brother. Sarah glanced over him and smiled sarcastically. Dude, you are always in a pissy mood, especially when you drink. You sound like Alex, grumbled Charlie. You aren't supposed to be like them. You are the only one who's on my side. He slunk down in his seat and pouted. Sarah burst out laughing. I am on your side. I'm also the only one who calls you on your shit. Stop pouting, you big baby. She elbowed him good-naturedly and he cracked a bit of a smile. Turn left up here, he said. They drove for a few more minutes until he pointed at two willow trees at the edge of the road. The drive is hidden, so slow down at the house before them. He pointed to the house he meant. That is the main house. He pointed to another house just past it, set back from the road. That is the one we're going to. Sarah slowed and turned into the drive, or what passed as one. It was really just two tracks covered in grass. No one had been there in, in a lot, very long time. She pulled the car up alongside the house and got out. The heart, house looked unremarkable and run down from the outside. The windows sat like large, dark eyes watching her. The cement stairs leading to the door were crumbling, and the mental handle was rusted and shaky. The layout of the house looked like someone had just taken bits and pieces and put them together. What she assumed was the garage from the two large doors that looked like broken teeth and a drooping mouth was at the front of the house. There was no other door to enter but this one, as far as Charlie knew, which was odd for any house. 
there was usually a front door and a back door. This was clearly the side door. Sarah grabbed her equipment, her phone, and jumped up the stairs. She turned and looked at Charlie, who was hanging back a bit. You coming, she asked. He swallowed a gulp and took a deep breath, climbed the stairs, and, pulling the key, and pulled the key from his pocket. Feels different at night. The minute she stepped over the fresh threshold, she felt it. The hum. The vibration of energy. She began filming on her phone immediately, sending short videos to her friends. Charlie steered her steered to her steered her to the left and down to the, into the basement it was eerie but um, but um, but most unfinished basements were she wandered the space getting a feel for it and she just couldn't pin down the energy it was like it was water running through her fingers it had nothing she could pin down charlie walked to the other side of the basement and across a low wooden platform to a rotting wooden door he yanked it open in the two went up a few steps into the garage. It was full of wood and old furniture. It smelled like gas, rusted metal, and decay. It felt like a void, empty of anything. Most places carry some kind of energy, be it residual or otherwise. But the garage had nothing. It was like a vacuum. Even the air felt strange. Sarah quickly returned to the basement and gave it a good look. There were what appeared to be cement stalls about waist high on the far wall. Just inside the door from the garage was a low wooden platform which angled towards a drain in the floor. Along the opposite wall from the stalls was a wooden workbench. Red brick pillars divided the room in half. One that looked like it was a chimney to a wood stove seemed to call to Sarah. Sarah walked over to the pillow and pillar and slowly began circling it. She hummed a tune slightly off-key, softly. Charlie watched her. As she rounded the pillar, he got a good look at her face, and he almost screamed. Her lips were curled in a smile that held no joy or good intent. Her head was cocked slightly, and her hair had fallen over part of her face. He could see her eyes, one clearly, one hidden partially by hair, but it was enough. It was her eyes that almost made him scream. The gentle, playful hazel had been replaced by an almost black color. She had begun dragging her nails across the brick as she circled the pillar. Charlie reached out to touch her as she passed him, and he got the most overwhelming feeling of dread in the pit of his stomach. Hey, he said, quit playing around. I don't like this shit. Sarah continued her trek around the pillar. Hey, Charlie said more forcefully. Sarah stopped. Her back was to him, and she slowly turned her head around to look at him. What's the matter, Charlie, she said, lilting up on the end of his name. Her voice sounded strange, and Charlie knew she wasn't messing around. He reached out again and grabbed her by the arm. He pulled her to him and shook her as hard as he dared. Sarah, he yelled. Sarah continued to smile, that eerie smile at him, and he shook her again. Sarah, please, come back. He shook her one more time. Sarah blinked and glared at Charlie. What the hell are you doing? she asked, anger lacing her each word. Charlie searched her face. Sarah? Sarah yanked her arms from his grasp. Are you down here with anyone else? How much have you had to drink? She stormed over to the stairs. I thought we were going upstairs, she asked. Charlie nodded. As he reached the bottom of the stairs, Sarah looked down at him. You're going to explain to me why you were holding me, but not right now. She headed up to the stairs to the main level. I think we need to save that for the ride home. Charlie just nodded. <coughs> they reached the main level, and Sarah walked to the left into the kitchen. Her K2 stayed at baseline, and she continued into the dining room and living room. Still nothing. 
Then she heard a footfall from upstairs. Charlie was standing behind her, and no one else was in the house. She looked at him, and he just shrugged. I hear that all the time at night, like someone is pacing in the little hall. Sarah exited the living room and went down the little hall to the bottom of the stairs. Along the side of the stairs was a large steel grate. You could see right down into the basement. The pillar that she had been drawn to was right under the stairs. A shiver went down her spine. <coughs> they reached the bottom of the stairs, and Sarah put her hand on the newel post. As her foot landed on the first step, a chill ran through her. She looked up at the top of the stairs, and her heart leapt into her throat, partially from fear, partially from excitement. Do you see that? she whispered, reaching back behind her to grab Charlie. He moved forward to stand behind her. Yeah, he said back. He is there, every night, just stares at me. Sarah looked back up the stairs. The apparition of a large man stood at the top. He appeared to have on overalls and a large rimmed hat. He stood, staring down at her, arms crossed. The look on his face and the energy that rolled off him and slithered down the stairs to Sarah told her that he was not happy about them being there. Hello. Sarah took another step up. Charlie tightened his grip on her arm. He pulled her back down. What are you doing? he hissed. Haven't you ever talked to him? Sarah couldn't take her eyes, tear her eyes off the man. Charlie choked back a laugh that was rippled with fear. I ain't freaking crazy, he said, and pulled her down again. Let go, Sarah said. I'm going up. It's why we're here. She turned back and looked at Charlie. Concern etched his deeply tanned face, and she almost gave in. Then she felt a tug and turned back to the stairs. The shadow was gone now, but she knew he was still up there, waiting for her. He's waiting for me, she said, and all but ran up the stairs. Shit, Charlie spat out. He paced the bottom of the stairs for a few moments, waiting for Sarah to come back down. She didn't. She didn't scream. He was just about to haul her up to her when he heard a thump. He bolted up the stairs, yelling her name. He scanned the bedroom to the left quickly and couldn't see her. The access door to the attic was slightly ajar, and he reached to close it. He heard murmuring, and as he reached to close it, he heard murmuring from the bedroom to the right. Sarah, he whispered. The room was darker than the rest of the upstairs, even though it faced the front of the house and caught the light from the tall farm light in the yard. The light didn't seem to filter into the room. He could see Sarah. She was kneeling on the floor in the middle of the room, hands on her thighs, head bowed. He tried to step into the room, but something shoved him back. She's mine now. The voice that came from Sarah was not hers. It was deep, guttural, and definitely male. Charlie hated being pushed around, always had. So Charlie did what Charlie always did when confronted with adversity. He fought back. He shoved his way into the room and jerked Sarah to her feet. He pulled with all he had and dragged her to the door of the room. Something was pulling back. Sarah moaned in pain. Charlie tugged again and his foot kicked her phone. She had turned the flashlight on and as it spun, it lit up Sarah's face. Her eyes were glazed over and it looked like someone had, had, a, had, a, someone had a hand wrapped around her throat. Charlie gave one more good hard yank on her arm and suddenly they were lying in a heap in the hallway. He heard what, they could only what he could only describe as a growl inside his head. Sarah was all but unconscious in his arms. Charlie sat with her lying in his lap and took breath after breath. The air, which felt heavy and dense a moment before, now felt thin and cold. Sarah started to stir. She opened her eyes and realized she was staring up at Charlie. What the hell, she asked as she scrambled awkwardly out of his lap. Charlie stood up, offered his hand to her, and helped her up. You tripped, he said, as he turned toward the stairs. You done? 
Sarah laughed. We just got here. No, I'm not done. She grabbed her phone and the K2 and started doing a sweep. There was an odd blip, but nothing that nothing to get excited over. She passed the attic door and stopped. And stopped. Charlie had headed back downstairs. You call me, she hollered. She didn't get a reply. Sarah. She heard her name again. The door to the attic was sitting slightly ajar, and she opened it. As she shone her flashlight around the small opening, she saw a platform just inside the door, and planks that ran behind all the walls. She climbed onto the small three. She climbed into the small three-foot attic door and sat down on the platform. Pulling the door shut, she turned off her flashlight and sat in the dark. The ability to feel energy had always been something she could do, so she let her shields down and felt the energy around her. It felt angry, dark, but not scary. It felt human. The door to the attic whipped open and Charlie's face appeared in the opening. You out of your damn mind, he screamed. Sarah crawled out, confused. What the hell is wrong with you, she asked, angry now. You've been a jerk since I fell. Charlie stomped back down the stairs. Charlie! Sarah called after him as she followed him down. He grabbed their coats, her purse, and the keys. Can we just go now? Sarah was just about to say yes when she saw Charlie's eyes get huge. She spun around and the man was back at the top of the stairs. He grunted at them and turned back towards the bedroom to the right. Sarah grabbed her phone and began sending videos rapid fire to her best friend. She filmed the K2 lighting up and responding to questions. She filmed the uncanny darkness at the top of the stairs. She filmed everything. After about 15 minutes of non-stop videos, her friend told her to stop. He didn't want to see any more, but she knew she needed to document it. Someone else needed to see this. So she started sending them to her sister. Her sister had the ability to see things that weren't there. She was a medium. After about 10 minutes, she cautioned Sarah. You need to be careful. I don't like how this feels, she texted. Sarah rolled her eyes. Her sister always treated her like she didn't know what she was doing. This was her domain, her specialty. She was a professional. She knew what she was doing. Shortly after, the activity died down and the two headed back to the house. As they crossed the line from the driveway to the road, Charlie started gasping. Sarah tried to turn her head to see what was wrong, but it felt like someone was holding her head in one position and squeezing. She slammed her foot down on the gas and sped out of there as fast as she could. The farther away they got, the less the hold got. As they reached the stop sign to turn, the hold finally let go. Charlie took a deep, shuddering breath, and Sarah let her head fall forward, resting her forehead on the steering wheel. Holy shit, she said. Charlie just nodded. She turned the corner and headed down the road. Neither spoke until they got back to the house. Both gulped down a beer to calm their nerves, and Sarah sunk to the floor and Charlie into a chair. Sarah looked up at Charlie and let out an audible gasp. His eyes were blood red. The entire white of the eye was gone. His mouth was making puckering noises like a fish, and he slowly slid to the floor. Sarah dragged him over to her and placed his head in her lap, trying to calm him. Panic was etched all over his face. She took a few pics of his eyes and sent them to her best friend. She knew he didn't want to be involved, but she needed help. His help. The two worked on Charlie for about an hour. Some negative energy had entered into him and was starting to take a hold. Eventually, his eyes returned to normal color and he felt more like himself. Sarah thanked her friend and the two called it a night. Sarah lay in her bed that night. She felt a pull, a call to go back. Even though what had just happened was unnerving and what had happened when they left the property had been scary, she wanted to go back. When she approached Charlie about it the next day, he flat out said no. 
until a few weeks later. He had been offered the job of renovating the inside and was told he could hire someone to help him. Since he had worked with Sarah all summer and knew how she worked, he'd offered her the job. The activity had all but stopped, so he hadn't given that night a second thought. The two worked side by side for weeks. Sarah refinished the bathtub and then retiled the bathroom, painted walls and stripped floor wood floors. Then the day came she was asked to, to smash up the concrete dividers in the basement. She'd been working on the bedroom upstairs painting primer and had not wanted to leave that room. She felt at home there, but this was her chance to show the homeowner what she, just what she could do. She grabbed her sledgehammer and down to the basement she went. She spent the rest of the week smashing big rocks into little rocks. Each night her arms ached and her back ached, but she felt good. She felt strong. Every night she talked on the phone with her best friend before she went to sleep. But there were nights that she couldn't sleep. The energy beckoned her to come upstairs. She would get out of bed and stand at the base of the stairs, staring up. Charlie was originally sleeping in the bedroom downstairs, and Sarah on the couch. But when she started her trips to the stairs, he had moved her into the bedroom, and he took the couch. Then he moved upstairs, but it made him feel so uncomfortable he couldn't sleep. Eventually, he moved back down to the couch, where he could at least hear the bedroom door open and keep an eye on Sarah to make sure she didn't hurt herself. Many mornings, she had no recollection of her trip to the stairs. Then the voice started. It taunted Charlie. It was Sarah's mouth that it was coming out of, but it was not her voice. He got to the point that he knew the second the entity took over. Her face would change, her eyes would go almost black, and the way she moved, the way she carried herself, all changed. It picked at Charlie, goaded him, begged him to fight back. It pushed him, literally and figuratively. Each time Charlie pleaded with Sarah, he spoke only to Sarah, and each time he was able to bring her back. Why don't you go to your sister's for a few days, he asked. He had to go home for a few days for his son's birthday and was nervous about leaving Sarah alone in the house. There's too much work here to be done. Besides, I will get to have my bubble bath with you out of the house, she grinned. He appeared reluctant to leave, but inside he was relieved, a little relieved. This was... This was way out of his realm of knowledge, and she was getting harder and harder to handle. When he returned, she seemed normal, but as he watched some videos she had recorded, he knew she was far from it. As they continued working, more and more time would pass that Sarah wouldn't remember anything. She would wake up with scratches down her back, bruises on her thighs and arms, until the one night she did remember. She was lying in her bed and just hung up the phone from her nightly chat. She was playing a word game when she felt someone else in the room with her. Charlie? She asked as she turned the flashlight on. The only light in the room was the ceiling light, and the switch was by the door. No one answered. She waved the small light around the room and saw nothing. She got out of the bed as quickly as she could and turned on the light. She could hear Charlie snoring faintly on the other side of the door. The room was empty. She hesitated, and she went to flip off the light and opted for opening the blinds instead. She pulled them up, and the light from the house next door poured in the window, giving the room an amber glow. She flipped off the light and crawled back into bed. She f shut the phone off and snuggled under the blankets. They had installed the fireplace in the basement the day before, and while it did a decent job, the room was always cold. With the door closed, it could get frosty. She was almost asleep when she felt a tug on the blanket. Her eyes flew open, but she didn't move. Most of her childhood, things like this happened, so she had trained herself to become fully aware, but to remain motionless. Again, a tug on the blanket but this time it felt like someone was climbing into the bed with her. The next moment she was lying flat on her back and staring up at an impossible blackness. It engulfed it, 
It engulfed her. It surrounded her, and within seconds, it was inside of her. She was completely aware of her surroundings. She just had absolutely no control. The sound that came out of her mouth made the window rattle and the door shake. It was partially a scream, partially a growl. Her back arched and everything but her head, shoulders, and feet lifted off the bed. A pain so raw, so hot, tore through her like claws. She now understood where the marks on her back had come from. The laugh that echoed inside her head also seemed to tumble out of her mouth and bounce off the walls of the room. Inside, she was screaming as loud as she could, begging to be set free. She was met with more laughter. Free, it asked. To be free is to be removed from that which shackles you. This body shackles you. Do you wish to be free? It sounded so sincere, so innocent, but Sarah was not stupid. She may have been a fool, letting her guard down, being cocky and not protecting herself like she should have that first night. She knew what the entity wanted. It wanted her dead. It screamed again and tossed her about the bed. Charlie heard the commotion and knew it had taken over again. The possessions were nightly now and getting more and more violent. The night before, it had made Sarah pee on the floor in the living room. She just stood there, staring blankly, while urine ran down her legs and pulled at her feet. When he forced open the door, Sarah bolted from the bed. She crouched like an animal at the end under the window. Sarah, he called. Sarah, come back. Sarah laughed. She's almost completely mine. You want the bitch? You need to take her. Charlie, calmly as he could, walked over to Sarah and pulled her to her feet. He grabbed her by the upper arms and stared into her blank eyes. But they weren't as blank as they usually were. He could see something moving just beyond, just behind the blankness. Sarah, are you in there? Can you hear me? He asked. He gave her a shake, just as he did every night. Sarah's body twisted and arched, and her head flung back. A long, shuddering breath tore into her lungs, and she managed to get out two words. Help me, she begged before the entity took back over. Sarah's body slammed into Charlie, knocking him to the floor, and she jumped up onto the bed. She would rather die than give in to me. Shall we let her die, you and me? Shall we watch her, or are you going to save her? It mocked Charlie. Sarah, Sarah, come back. Please come back. The voice spoke in a taunting tone, laughing as Charlie stood up. He approached the bed and Sarah swung her arm, raking her nails across his face. Do it, Charlie, do it. It slammed a fist into his stomach. Charlie grabbed one of Sarah's arms by the wrist. Sarah flung them both back onto the bed. Charlie scrambled to regain control. He sat across her waist, pinning both her arms down over her head. She bucked and fought and Charlie thought he had her. Suddenly, her body went rigid. Again, Sarah's voice broke through. Help me, was all she could get out. Charlie leaned down to look into Sarah's eyes to comfort her. As he did, he watched those hazel eyes turn coal black. A grin spread across Sarah's face and Charlie's heart almost stopped. Slowly, Sarah lifted her arms, pushing Charlie back. Charlie put all his strength into his upper body and forced her arms back down. The laugh that came from Sarah unnerved him, but he didn't let up. You are no match for me. Sarah again raised her arms slowly, and then with nothing more than a casual flip of her wrists, she flung Charlie across the room. He hit the wall and was stunned for a moment. As he came around, his eyes fell on a small bottle. About a week before, Sarah had taken a trip to see a friend, and she had given her some protection oil. She was supposed to wear it every day to keep the entity out. Judging by the amount left in the bottle, she hadn't been doing it for some time. He grabbed the bottle and remembered what the friend had said. He needed to put it on her forehead, her wrists, and the back of her neck. He uncorked the bottle and looked at Sarah. She was eyeing him suspiciously. 
Good luck, buddy, she hissed. He lunged at her and didn't really care where the oil went. He all but dumped it over her head and rubbed it into her neck. Within minutes, Sarah passed out. Charlie grabbed her phone and called her friend. What is she doing now? her friend asked. Passed out, I think, Charlie said. No, I think it's regrouping. Her friend fell silent for a moment. Okay, get it on her forehead. Make sure it's on her temples and her neck. Then put it on the bottom of her feet. Take advantage of this moment of peace because once it realizes it's being expelled, it could get ugly. Charlie did just that, and as he was applying it to her feet, the entity came back. It screamed in rage and kicked out at him. Grab her and hold on, her friend yelled into the phone. Charlie did just that. He sat on the floor and pulled her down with him. He wrapped his arms around hers and held her while she bucked and screamed. The oil had weakened the entity and he could man just manage to hang on. It took about 20 minutes of both Charlie and her friend calling to her, but Sarah slowly started coming back. Then she started vomiting. Charlie helped her to the bathroom and held her hair as she retched uncontrollably. What do I, what do, I do, Charlie asked. Nothing. Just hold her hair and clean her up. This is the entity leaving her body. She's had quite a hold on her, replied her friend. After she was done and was back to herself, she took the phone from Charlie. Thank you, she said. Her throat was raw and her voice hoarse. Don't thank me. When you are at 100% again, you are going to get the shit kicking of your life, said her friend. Sarah laughed weakly. Yeah, I kind of deserve it. You know what you need to do, right? Asked the friend. Sarah let out a long, uncomfortable sigh. Yeah, although I don't want to. He's going to lecture me more than you are. Yep, he'll also make sure it's gone. Sarah hung up, cleaned up, crawled into bed. Charlie slept on the floor beside her bed that night, just to be sure. For the next few days, Sarah all but bathed in the oil her friend had given her. When she did get down to see the spiritual practitioner that could help her, he did lecture her. She was a medium and a conduit in her own right, and she should have known better. She should have recognized the signs. The friendship between Sarah and Charlie petered out eventually. It was just too much for Sarah to handle. Every time she saw him, she was filled with fear. It wasn't a demon that had tried to completely possess her. It was something of the natural energy around her an entity older than the land it inhabited, something even the local indigenous people didn't have a name for. It was described as something close to a giant spider hovering over the land and the house. It let you see what you needed to, to get you into its web. It had marked Sarah and would forever be connected to her, but she had the power and the tools to keep it out. As long as she never set foot back on that land, she would be able to protect herself, unless it came looking for her. And that, my friends, is where we are going to end not only the story, but the podcast. We have done an hour and 42 minutes. I want to wish you all a very happy Halloween. And to those who observe the holiday, a blessed Samhain and a happy Celtic New Year. Just remember, you never know what might be just sitting beside you or just around that darkened corner. And always, always, always be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. All right, everybody. Have a great evening. Have a good week. Have a wonderful Halloween. And I will talk to you all next week. Uh, remember, wash your hands, be kind, and don't lick shit. All right. See ya. No!
the sun. There'll be peace when you are gone. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry. Don't you cry.